Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener. You'll have ad-free episodes and join us on our monthly Zoom calls with other podcast listeners and get to know the community at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes. It gave us this opportunity to like slow down, let the noise quiet and really appreciate like the value of our life, which was like the value of our partnership of having a child who was this additional bond between the two of us and to really enjoy that. I'm Alex Bloomberg, host of the podcast Startup, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. My name is Esprit Devora, born and raised L.A., and I created We Are L.A. Tech in 2012 to unify the community. Podcast launched in 2014, continuing to help people find the best talent, to connect with each other, to form awesome relationships. So proud of this show. Enjoy. Today's We Are LA Tech podcast episode shout out goes to Abel Hernandez. Abel Hernandez, thank you so much for engaging with us on the We Are LA Tech Instagram. We appreciate you. Be sure to say hello to Abel Hernandez on Instagram at Abel Product. That's A-B-E-L-P-R-O-D-U-C-T. Tell him you found him via We Are LA Tech. Hello, and welcome back to the We Are LA Tech podcast, spotlighting LA tech companies and talent across the city, across the county. Uh, I am Dave Whalen, uh, the CEO of Bioscience LA, and uh, one of the very lucky guest hosts for We Are LA Tech as we go into the the, the tail, uh, tail end of 2022 and into 2023, and really excited to have Belinda Tan with me today um, as uh, one of the co-founders of People Science, but with a great background that connects healthcare and technology and, and medicine and innovation. And so really, really thrilled for this conversation. Belinda, please, uh, please say hi and just uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and, and what you've been doing kind of in the past. And we'll get to People Science in a minute, but uh, I'd love to start with just you know, who you are and uh, where you come from. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, Such an honor to be on this podcast. Um, My background originated in Malaysia, which is where I was born. And I moved to the U.S. when I was four years old. And my first language was not English. I spoke a dialect of Chinese called Hokkien. And way back in the day, somehow I managed to get pushed into the school system not speaking a word of English, according to my mom, and wow. managed to, yeah, get support from the school. Was this Los Angeles or where, where was this? You know what? It was not Los Angeles. It was um, it was on the East Coast. It was in Connecticut. Um, the reason we came to the U.S. was because my dad worked for uh, a major bank, um, Citibank, and so they had him worked in New York City. We lived in Connecticut. Um, and yeah, I got plugged into the school that that pretty much got me ramped up to become the English speaking person I am today. Um, And then we ended up moving to California when I was um, in third grade. 
um, and spent most of my childhood growing up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And mind you, this was way pre-tech anything, um, so the Bay Area was quite a different place. I left the Bay Area to go to college. I went to MIT. Um, and the reason I went there was my top priority when I applied to colleges was I need to be far away from home because I need to get out and figure it out <laughs> and do my own thing. Um, and see, I, I can, by the way, I can, I can totally appreciate, I can totally appreciate that. And I had the opposite because, you know, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so, you know, not, not that far from Connecticut, uh, but um, and by the way, I um, I can tell you where I really wanted to go to school for college, uh, and I did not get in, and it is MIT, and so I ended up oh, going wow. to Stanford. So I sort of did the opposite oh, thing, right? So I moved to the Bay Area for college, whereas you went uh, you went to MIT. So congratulations yeah. on that. I'm still jealous that I haven't gotten to attend <laughs> MIT. Well, thank you. It was it was truly the first time in my life that I felt like I belonged somewhere. Um, as you can imagine, growing up first generation um, in the Bay Area, in the era that I did, um, it wasn't as diverse as it is today. And when I went to college, I all of a sudden was like immersed in this culture of people coming from all over the world, um, where I distinctly remember every conversation that I encountered that first week of, of orientation would be like a half hour conversation. It was so much fun. Um, and and my, my mom tells the story of how during my first few weeks in college as a freshman, I kind of forgot to call home because <laughs> I was having so much fun for reals. Like what happened was, you know, this was pre-cell phone days. So um, MIT back then during orientation had a clearinghouse where every event you went to during um, orientation, we also were in temporary dorms. So you had to sign in and then the clearinghouse somehow like could track down where each student was should they need to be contacted. And somehow um, I was having so much fun that I didn't check in with my parents. They knew I was there, so that was a good thing. So um, nevertheless, it was a blast. Um, and I was truly starting to feel like I was finding myself um, in this new ecosystem of really interesting people. Everything is numbers at MIT. I was course seven with um, a focus on course nine. And course seven is biology. Course nine is brain and cognitive science. Um, and at the time, I was convinced I was going to study the brain and like be a neurobiologist or something in that realm um, because my most favorite subject in high school as a senior was, was AP psychology. So after that, I was like, holy cannoli, like, our brain actually works with these neurotransmitters, like a signal is determining what I'm thinking, how I behave. And I, I could not believe that. And I wanted to know more. So that's why, you know, I, I focus on that going to college. And so in college, I ended up being a pre-med. Um, and, you know, that's kind of, according to my culture, a good pathway to take. And <laughs> Um, rather than being an was engineer. That, was, that a parent, was that a parental pressure you know, kind of thing? Or? I, I have to say, rather than using the word pressure, I would use the word influence. So my influence. parents did influence that, <laughs> <laughs> that decision. Um, and when I started college, I was determined to be an engineering major because I wanted to be aware that I was influenced to go pre-med. However, I, I had my own choice and I was choosing to explore something else. So I, I was actually um, a chemie, chemical engineering um, engineer for a year. And I was like, 
my brain does not work like this. I just do not, I don't get it. Um, and so I switched to, to biology. Um, and, and that was a great choice. And toward the end of college, you know, as I was thinking about pre-med, um, again, that, that part of me was like, you know, I can't be told what to do. I need to like explore and figure it out. I didn't feel that applying straight up to med school was my, was for me. So what I ended up doing was applying to an MD PhD program. Um, so all of the country, many major medical schools have something that's called the medical scientist training program, MSTP. Um, and it's this NIH funded um, program that combines the MD and PhD. And um, that's why I applied for, and I got into UCLA. So um, off I went. Um, and yet again, I was like, oh, did I make the right decision? Because now I'm not going to be stuck in this like med school program for who knows how long. And and I actually deferred for a year. Um, so rather than starting right away, I spent um, several months in Malaysia, um, hanging out with my cousins and kind of immersing myself in that culture and looking again to figure out, you know, where where I was, who I was as a person. Because after college, you know, we we all kind of think we know it all and then we realize we don't. And that's a really tough, you know, place to be in life um, for anyone is a, this moment of indecision, yet this moment of feeling you have so much opportunity. So Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great opportunity to be able to do that. Had, had you traveled back to visit your family over the years leading up to that? Or was that your, oh, yes. you know, one of your first yeah. times back? It was, we had gone many times and, and, um, uh, thank, thankful for my parents, um, that they had seen the, the benefit of that. So over the years as a, um, in grade school, we would spend summer vacations in Malaysia, um, and kind of just hang out there, staying with my cousins and my first cousins and I are very close, um, as a result of that. So that was really terrific. Um, so yeah, I was going back to Malaysia to, to hang out there. Um, and then it it did what it needed to do that time away, you know, time away in terms of space and time away from my parents, where I came back with an enthusiasm, you know, to jump into med school and into that curricula. Um, and when I started at UCLA, um, I again ran into this, you're going to see this as a pattern, Dave, <laughs> I ran into this moment <laughs> of like, holy cannoli, did I just make the wrong decision yet again? Like, going into the first year of med school, which is the didactic years, it felt so rigid. And so, so the other, the other experience that I had at at MIT, which I I should mention is like um, the freedom there to really like learn and explore. And the curricula was, was quite different than med school when I started it, you know, back, back in the the nineties. So I felt again, this, like this moment of, I was being controlled by a system that didn't feel right to me. Um, and I actually became depressed. Like I was, I had bona fide um, major depressive disorder. I found myself in that first year of medical school, like waking up in the morning in tears and not being able to get out of bed. That's not an unusual uh, feeling for first year of med school, right? That's kind of... Uh... Many people have that have that kind of uh, you know, and again, many and many people have more pressure than influence to be at med school. I feel like so it's, you kind of get to that point. Your feeling is consistent with how I have experienced it. I think that um, 
I think mental health is not, it's stigmatized still. And like, maybe things are a little bit different these days. It certainly is compared to back when I was in med school. But, you know, having, having that courage to say, like, I, I am depressed, and I, I don't feel well, and I need help. I think that is really hard to do. And then added on to that, you know, my culture as an Asian American, it's even worse, you know, to have that stigma. So and my parents were like, completely besides themselves they had no idea what to do um you know they've got this kid who's in med school and she's depressed and she can't go to school so um I somehow mustered whatever internal strength I had to go and seek help with student health and um and I got into therapy took some meds um and was able to get back into um into the flow and go back to school after that. And this was about, I took a little bit of time off. Um, I um, took what I call a leave of absence, I guess what a lot of people call a leave of absence um, from school and hung out with a bunch of artists in LA. Um, And this was also this other part of me was like, maybe medicine and science isn't for me. Maybe I'm an artist because all, all my life I've also had that calling. I love that. Actually, just, just, you know, I want to uh, pick up on that in a second, but just, uh, you know, just back to LA in a second. So what, what was it about UCLA? And uh, was it, was it Los Angeles? Was it UCLA? Why, why MD PhD at UCLA and not, you know, Harvard down the street from, uh, you know, down the street from MIT or, you know, why not someplace else? Yeah. You know, it was where I got in and I can't remember <laughs> to be honest, the other MSTP um, uh, schools that I had gotten into. Um, it it wasn't it wasn't like I had a whole choice of many different places. I think there was like I don't know it was spread throughout the country, and some of part of me also wanted to go back to California, and part of me wanted to go to a big city. Um, I've had this like big city girl in me as well, um, so that was that was also the reason for that choice. Yeah, got it, um, got it. And, and it probably gave you that opportunity. Like I love, I love this idea of hanging out with the art, the art community. And it's sort of, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of Jim Morrison and, you know, in the movie, the doors, right. And he's sort of, uh, or I guess the actual, the actual, it was, it was actual reality, but, uh, you know, I only know it from the movie, but, uh, you know, he's going to UCLA, but hanging out with a bunch of, uh, artists and musicians on, uh, you know, in Venice. And, you know, that leads to the, you know, leads to, you know, creating this, this band, The Doors, and, you know, all of the art and music that was around that. So I'm imagining you sort of being the, the, the scientist version of Jim Morrison or something. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a neat image. Um, the, so I, I was hanging out with these artists, and one of the reasons among the few that made me excited to come back into the med school program was this, um, this respect that I was starting to feel from the art community of like someone in science, you know, and, and medicine who they weren't accustomed to having around. Um, And, and it's funny, you know, when you're a med student, if you're hanging around communities of people who don't have healthcare people around, everyone assumes you're a doctor. (laughs) And everyone's like asking you all their medical issues. And it's like, okay, I think I took anatomy and I took like, you know, histology. That's kind of all. Um, But I, I felt, I guess I felt appreciated, you know, and I felt the value of what I could bring to a community like that. And that, that gave me this enthusiasm to go back. And, and I also had the mindset that like, 
you know, this is a this is a fixed moment in my life, this training. It doesn't have to be like this forever. I have to get myself through it, you know, move through it. And then coming out the other side, there will be more opportunities. And that was part of also my thought process as well. And and by the way, I mean, and we can you know pick up on this in a little bit because I think it will come back. You know, I see um, I, I see so much of an interplay between between science and art. Uh, I think that's one of the things that makes LA you know LA special. And you know, and even you know, even thinking about medicine, I mean, uh, you know, you you look at kind of um, you know, you look at the you know the the anatomy books and sort of like the whole you know scientific drawings and anatomical drawings and kind of that intersection of of art and science where uh, you know every once upon a time every scientist was had to be a little bit of a of, of a at least a sketch artist right I mean I, I can remember drawing you know drawing pictures of you know cells and things like that but I, you know when I was in like you know elementary school or middle school right and you kind of learn that idea that you know science is about experiencing the world and then finding a way to share it with others and in a world before, you know, before computers and before iPhones and things like that, we had to just draw what we were seeing and then, you know, publish that. So, you know, you're not, you know, you're not coming at this from a, you know, completely out of, uh, out of left field. There's a history here. Totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you look at the philosophers of the old days, many of them, had this whole like um, science to arts kind of spectrum of what they pursued and what they were interested in, you know, and and I think um, in how these these fields have grown in terms of the knowledge and how our modern societies are thinking about them, um, they're pulling it apart, and yet there's this this inevitable connection between the creativity that's involved in art and science. So I completely agree, and I and I think part of my my evolving appreciation for this um that goes along this theme of like feeling like I don't belong because I'm I am experiencing something that's different from external experiences is like being an artist and a scientist are not mutually exclusive experiences right uh, exactly exactly so uh I I think that's that's fabulous so what did you end up graduating uh from at, at UCLA yeah, so at UCLA, um, the way that program works is the the MD, you do your first two years of MD, and then you go to the lab and do your PhD, and then you finish your last two years of MD. Um, and so what I ended up doing in, in my research was um, immunology. Um, and this was um, the way that I landed on immunology from my initial passion of neurobiology was that I... I had done first some exploring of labs where I would do my PhD in neurobiology, where it was doing like patch clamp testing. I don't know if you're familiar with all of those kinds of technical tools and methods in um, in neurobiology research and learning and memory research, um, but it felt very distant from like the human being and the behavior part that I was so intrigued by and, you know, working with cells and like a machine and, and I, I, I didn't feel connected to it. So, um, so I explored in immunology lab, I ended up loving it. Um, and what I also love about the, the discipline of immunology is that there's so much mechanism that's been figured out and there's so much mechanism that needs to be figured out. So it's got this like 
this precision about it that I loved and that I could actually wrap my head around at the time. Um, and yeah, I ended up studying innate immunity. Um, it was a lab where we used um, mycobacteria, so the, the bacteria that causes tuberculosis um, and the bacteria uh, that causes leprosy. Um, we used that as our model to study innate immunity. Um, and after five years, I got my PhD um, and went back to my last two years of medical school. Wow, that's uh, and I, I love innate innate immunity. I love that. I love that phrase. And uh, and I, I can imagine uh, um, I was actually just hearing a pitch around a, a, a cancer you know cancer therapeutic company, and they were talking about sort of this idea of the the research behind it is sort of understanding you know, why do certain treatments work and not work? And then, you know, why, you know, why do certain, you know, why do certain cells end up cancerous and other ones not? And I imagine there's some relationship there, right? Where it's understanding kind of why, why do some people stay healthy or why do some cells stay healthy and others not? And what can we learn from that that helps, um, you know, helps us figure out a better, a better therapeutic or even eventually a better prevention? The very specific topic that I pursued in my PhD was um, this this new part of immunology that was just emerging and super exciting at the time. And there were these um, this family of receptors called toll-like receptors, um, or TLRs for short. Um, and what's super cool about the toll-like receptors are they are pathogen recognition receptors. They and pattern recognition receptors. So it turns out that. Um, through millennia of um, evolution across human beings, Homo sapiens, as well as a lot of other um, plants and and all across the tree of life, um, these pattern recognition receptors have been conserved. And, um, and it's the way that our bodies recognize different types of bacteria and signal to it. And it's so fascinating. Um, and it was just coming out um, during my my years during my PhD. So my my thesis was around that as well. Um, and I think a lot of what we're seeing now with um, you know the microbiome um, and the ways that we're looking for drug interventions, even in immunotherapy, um, it's using a lot of the knowledge and the continuing growth of knowledge around um, these these toll-like receptors. Um, I know even in in oncology, um, you know they're finding these bacteria within tumors um, and trying to see how that relationship occurs, um, whether or not it's promoting or whether or not it's um, it's fighting against the tumor. Um, there, there's an interplay as well there. So it's, it's, it's such cool stuff. Immunology is a really, really beautiful field and there's so much more to learn. Yeah. And I think LA, you know, LA continues to be a place where we, you know, we're a, an, a leader, emerging leader, hopefully, you know, hopefully more to come around that. So I, I love that Love that you're staying interested in that. So, so tell me, you so you you graduate with two degrees from UCLA, and uh, and and then what? And then I did my residency. So, um, some people choose who graduate from MSTP choose to move on and not actually practice medicine, and will work in industry. Um, you know, do a startup, any variety of things. Um, and I chose the path to continue to get my credentials. I did a residency, um, internship and residency. So internship 
was that Sloan Kettering? So this was by my big city girl who came yep, out again. And I was like, yeah. okay, maybe when I finish school, I'm going to go and live and work in New York City. So, <laughs> so I applied for my internship out there, um, and that was one year. And then I came back to LA to Harbor UCLA to do my dermatology residency, um, and that was another three years. And then after that, um, I still had that big city calling. So I went back to New York City, um, back to Sloan Kettering to do a fellowship in dermatopathology. Um, And why all that training? (laughs) Because it was part of me saying, I'm curious, I want to learn more, I'm enjoying this, so why not? And, um, and and fortunately, you know, in the field of medicine, the pathway that I chose, um, you do get a bit of a stipend. Um, So I know a lot of People are challenged by making career choices with school or no school um, based on whether or not they can afford to pay for it. And um, the MSTP is a program that that supports you um, through your training. Um, it's it's modest, um, and that's totally fine because you know as a student, there's a lot of different ways to live um, in LA for sure. You know, with that type of stipend, and and it continued you know through the schooling, and then even with residency and fellowship, you do still get a stipend as well. So I was able to continue to be a student for many years without having a full-fledged job because it was like a job. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's terrific. And uh, yeah, and, and, and Sloan Kettering is such a, such a great institution. And, uh, you know, having spent some time going back and forth between LA and New York, uh, which I, I think that LA is absolutely a big city. And then New York is, you know, it's even more of a big city because it feels, you know, it, it feels like a city. So uh, I can completely relate to that. And so you're you're continuing to expand your training. You're getting, um, you know, you're kind of quenching that, uh, you know, that thirst for, you know, knowledge and exploration. And, but you, you did not practice medicine, correct? You kind of went the entrepreneurial route or was there is something in between? I did. I did. I did practice medicine. So after my fellowship, um, so after residency, I took my dermatology boards, um, got certified in derm. um, And then after my fellowship, I took my dermatopathology boards and got certified in that. um, And I came back to LA. And the reason I came back to LA was because of community. So, you know, having spent a lot of my formative adult years, my 20s um, here in LA, that's where my people were. Um, and I felt I felt a deep connection to this community, and and then also my my future partner um, Noah, like he was still here in LA, also working and practicing, and um, we decided to get hitched, and so that brought me back to LA as well. Um, so yeah, I came back and I practiced medicine for a few years, um, kind of a combination of dermatology um, in the private practice community, as well as dermatopathology. Um, And then I spent a little bit of time also teaching. I was a part-time faculty member for a period of time at Harbor UCLA, where I did my residency and um, really loved that. I think one of the the draws that brings me to LA um, and continues to keep me here in terms of the work I do with with healthcare and medicine um, research is the unique hospital system here. I love, love, love the patient community at Harbor UCLA. Um, it's a it's a primarily um, Latin um, community. And um, fortunately, I 
took Spanish in undergrad, not undergrad, in junior high and high school. So I could, I could speak with my patients when I was um, there training um, and I wanted to come back to it. So teaching part-time there. And then also in several years afterwards, um, continuing as a volunteer attending um, at Herb UCLA, it's also kept me to communicate, connected to that community, Um, not only to the patients, also to the the trainees who I feel um, it's among the, the valuable aspects of my training at Harbor was that there were many community dermatologists who were our attendings there and they were so diverse um, in terms of their practice styles, you know, so they were coming like some were clinicians in, um, you know, like primarily HMO community clinics, others were clinicians in Beverly Hills, you know, some in Santa Monica. So you really got this this breadth of of um, learning and also like what they were seeing in the community based on what they taught us. And that that stuck with me. And I felt that, you know, in my continuing to participate as a, a volunteer attending in the years later, um, coming to the students there, um, I was providing them with my perspective because I, I too am kind of a different animal in the zoo, so to speak, you know, in terms of a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist in L.A., so, yeah, yeah no, I, I love that. And I think, you know, L.A. is such an amazing, diverse community in, you know, in, in business and technology anyway. But then when you're when you're dealing with the healthcare side of business uh, and technology, just, you know, healthcare practice, healthcare innovation, that level of diversity just makes it even more even more exciting. And, and you're right. Harbor Harbor UCLA is just a, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous place and it, you know, continues to evolve. I mean, uh, you, you were there, uh, before the Lundquist Institute had its fancy new facility and, uh, uh, before it was even called the Lundquist Institute. And, uh, I know there's still lots of, uh, lots of construction going on there now as they make that kind of ready for the next generation of, uh, of research and physicians. Uh, so you're doing, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're doing a lot, um, and uh, and then how how did you uh, you and Noah end up kind of coming to Science Thirty Seven? How did that uh, was that a problem you saw while practicing medicine? Was that something you took from your your research days? Sort of what was the the impetus to make that business happen? Yeah, so. Back when we were um, when I was doing all of these different types of like gigs, as I like to call it, um, Noah too was doing a bunch of different gigs. One of which was um, he was working for a company called Visual DX, and um, and we we're also supporting a friend, another fellow MD PhD dermatologist. It turns out who was trying to be an entrepreneur. Um, our friend Dave Wong, who started a company called Directerm, he's he was up at Stanford. Um, and Noah and I were involved with him in helping him to to build this company, and so we started to evolve this this um, expertise in telemedicine, dermatology. We we're scientists, and this opportunity came up where Genentech wanted to um, innovate in one of their rare disease trials. Um, so, you know, for those of you who know, rare disease is a really, really challenging area to do drug development, um, primarily because there's so few people who have the condition and these trials are really tough to enroll. And so um, these um, biopharma is always looking for ways to make it better and easier for the patients to participate um, and trying to utilize technology wherever they can. 
So telemedicine had been this this thought in, you know, in the innovation circles in biopharma for quite a while. So we didn't come up with that idea ourselves. It was just something that people knew um, could possibly, you know, really transform the field. And what I think happened was we were the right people in the right place at the right time where um, they they came to us. Um, we were they were looking to innovate in a Pemphigus vulgaris trial. So Pemphigus vulgaris is a very, very serious dermatology rare rare disease. Um, and they wanted to see how they could innovate on um, on recruiting and, you know, conducting that study. So what happened was um, because of all of our expertise, we were actually able to get a contract from Genentech to provide this innovation for their rare disease trial using telemedicine and um, conducting a lot of the assessments virtually as dermatologists, building a tech to support that. Um, and Science 37 was started um, because we got that contract from Genentech to get this, this first study going. Um, and that was back in um, 2014. Um, and then after that, it blossomed into a company that was addressing um, you know, clinical trial innovation needs across the whole industry, not only dermatology. So it's funny because people are like, wait, how are, how is it that dermatologists founded that company? <laughs> like, what's the story there? Yeah, no, that's yeah. such an interesting, and I just love that, you know, Genentech in, you know, inspired and essentially funded, uh, you know, funded something that led to that. Uh, it's, it's, it's very cool. And where, where did the name come from? Yeah. So science is easy. We're like, we need to put science in our name. <laughs> and then <laughs> I got that part. <laughs> yeah, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> and, and 37 is a funny story. Um, the the skinny of it is it's this number that's been a favorite number in in Noah and his kind of posse for for many years. It's like a it's like a a geeky funny number that I'm told, and it actually is quite true that um, a lot of um, television and movie writers um, have are on the in in terms of what it means. So now that you know, Dave, now that you're like a groupie of 37, pay attention on um, TV shows and movies and pay attention to what they say numbers because 37 is is um, overrepresented because of this <laughs> this kind of culture. And, and it's also a number that has really bizarre and fascinating mathematical properties. Um, and if you ever want to know even more, um, it's a it's a good conversation over a beer. I know I, I I looking forward to that. And by by the way, this uh, um, when 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 Esprit is uh, is hearing this, she'll appreciate this because uh, she and I, uh, in addition to like being connected by so many things here in LA Tech, we're both. We're both big users of this uh, productivity management tool um, uh, called Basecamp. And uh, Basecamp, the company that um, launched Basecamp, uh, they're called Thirty Seven Signals. And I think the, I think the, I think they have a similar inspiration uh, behind uh, behind Thirty Seven as well. So um, kind of a cool, yeah, cool uh, little circularity there. You see, you're already making the connections. <laughs> it's like, it's like awesome. a cooler version of 42, I'm guessing, right? So uh, You yeah, know, that, that number does come up too. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll mention, of course, that, that question always came up when we were like pitching and in our sales, um, you know, conversations back at Science 37. And, um, and the, the kind of 
easier answer that we had um, described was that 37 degrees Celsius is the normal body temperature. And we're using science and, you know, all the innovations that we have to bring people as close to their normal. As oh, I, I, that's, that's a good, I, that's a good way of reverse engineering it to come up with something <laughs> that sounds, uh, sounds strategic and yeah, you know, totally. what's, <laughs> what's very funny is I, you know, I've known, I've known the company for a long time. You and I have talked before and I actually, I had no idea where the name came from. So it's kind of, uh, I'm glad I've got the, the inside, the inside scoop now. And um, I definitely, I know we could spend a lot of time talking about Science 37, um, but I, I do want to kind of jump forward, but I want to, I want to ask the question, uh, you know, sort of you're, you're doing some really different cool things now. Sort of what did the what did the transition uh, you know the evolution of Science Thirty Seven look like as far as you know bringing in you know bringing in management I know the company is now uh, you know in in North Carolina essentially so you know kind of what was that transition like from you know for you and Noah as entrepreneurs Yeah you know I think I think what happens in in a lot of you know experiences as a, as entrepreneurs is that is that the idea evolves um, and needs to become something that services like the the larger community of 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 clients. So you know, what what does scale look like for Science Thirty Seven? And and part of it also is this dynamic of things kind of being pulled to the mean, um, and that's why it's in North Carolina. And a lot of the senior management are um, are industry execs, you know, from the CRO world. And and I think that's how things evolve, and it makes sense for where it is today. Um, and I think also, you know, in terms of how that whole transition happened, um, we were so much is so much is timing you know um we were building a company that was still really challenging um in terms of developing the market initially when we first launched it even though it was an idea that was so relatable and so like of course you know to people who we shared in the in the clinical trials world at least the actual like getting the adoption of it and the culture of of the drug development world um was tough and part of it is because drug development is such a expensive, really high risk, um, and you know safety is a huge thing. You know for for the people involved, um, it's it's a really tough industry to make a lot of changes happen, um, and and so we eventually had to continue to like service the what I call kind of like the the traditional system of a lot of of the farmer clients and and people were tiptoeing people as in our clients were tiptoeing around like how much of the innovation they could really adopt um and and so with that you know we had to make some some trade-offs and some de- decisions where like the most extreme manifestation of our vision and our innovation that the market wasn't ready for it yet um, and so it kind of took on this like hybrid stage and um, and then a lot of decisions were made where it no and I were no longer like the best fit for that direction that the company needed to take, you know, and and this is all pre pandemic, mind you, you know, and then the pandemic happened and all of a sudden, you know, that this whole world was like, yes, this is the solution that we need to, to rescue our drug development pathways, which was terrific. So the way that I look at it is like, 
um, it was part of our journey as founders. And, um, and also at the time, our, our first kid was one. And it gave us this opportunity to like slow down, let the noise quiet and really appreciate like the value of our life, which was like the value of our partnership of having a child who was this additional bond between the two of us um, and and to really enjoy that. Um, I think that, you know, we're both we're both very like high functioning people who can drive at things and, you know, get things done. Um, and, and that becomes intoxicating, um, you know, when, when things continue to go your way. Um, and then you forget the things that are truly valuable, you know, like, like our, our son and our partnership in life and really like truly seeing the value and the beauty of, um, of, of our family unit. So, so that, that happened. I love that. That's, that's going to be, we need to have that as a soundbite from this. That's, this is, that's so cool. And, um, you know, I, I think there's, you know, and we'll get to the fact that now you, now, now you and Noah have started a second company, but, uh, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing to even be able to start one company with someone that you, you know, you kind of live, work, you know, you're together all the time and being able to make a company that I think, you know, has had impact and, um, you know, we've talked about this before, but, you know, even though Science 37 is in North Carolina, there are how many other kind of uh, tech-enabled virtual clinical trial uh, connectivity companies here in Los Angeles, and none of those would exist. The market might not exist were it not for the work that you did with Science 37. So, so much has happened here that you guys helped to create. And then you have this time to be able to spend with your family, which is, which is amazing. And um, in the course of that, uh, you know, maybe, you know, give me the, the, now we fast forward again. So how did people science come out of that? Was this, uh, you, you were finally ready to do something else uh, together and uh, get out of the house a little bit, or was there, you know, was it just, uh, you know, suddenly the, the flash of inspiration yeah. around a new market need? No, none of that. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> none of was, that. All right. All right. Around, I, I, like, I got to hear it. <laughs> um, it was around this continued feeling of like, we still have the same vision. So, um, and the same vision is this. It is, how do we make it better and easier for individual people to take control of their health and their wellness and their betterment? You know, and um, and it's interesting, Dave, because um, some friends who I spoke to when we first started People Science, and that was back, um, you know, we officially founded People Science in 20, um, 2019. And I was talking to some of the friends who we were connected to way back in 2015, you know, when we first started People Science, I'm sorry, Science 37. And, um, and they're like, Melinda, it actually sounds like the same thing you told me years ago. And I was like, yeah, because you know what? there's still so much more to do. <laughs> we haven't solved it yet. Um, and, and we may never solve it completely. I think that's like, that's the, the beauty of a vision is it's, it's directional and this is where we want to be. Um, and what's awesome about people science is that it's, it's like utilizing a lot of our learnings from our last company We're we're not building the same thing whatsoever. However, we're building it foundationally 
from how we wished we would have built our prior company, um, you know, knowing what we did after the fact um, toward this big vision of how we make it better and easier for individual people to be better. And um, and so, you know, the, the vision behind people science, we when you look at our website, you know, it talks about how we're we're servicing evidence generation in the alternative medicine space, and we're a direct-to-consumer research company. So, so how does that all fit together in this bigger vision? And the way that we see it is that alternative medicines as a very broad category, it's not just herbals and supplements, it's, it's everything that is quote-unquote alternative, which I would say is outside of the prescription pad of your doctor. So these are things that day-to-day people, all of us, I'm sure you, Dave, certainly me, um, we're taking things that are not prescription and they're like things that we've either heard about, we read about, a friend told us about, that we're trying for something for our health. Um, And the challenge with this whole space is that people are using a lot of these products and making a lot of decisions um, to try them and there isn't a lot of evidence. And by evidence, I mean clinical evidence, like does it work, is it safe? Um, and the challenge, too, is that our, our healthcare industry, like our doctors and our providers who are trying to support us in our journey of health, they have no clue how to, how to like recommend or support us when we say, hey, um, doctor, I'm trying this new CBD product or this, I'm trying this gummy that my neighbor said was going to help me. Or like, I bought this supplement on Amazon because I read something on Instagram that said it's really going to help me with this joint issue. So like all these things are happening every single day and our doctors and providers, healthcare providers don't have the tools to educate themselves to support us. So this whole space needs so much more clinical evidence generation. Um, and then on top of it, I think what's cool about alternative medicines is that it's by it's by definition diverse. It's bringing in knowledge and products from all kinds of global cultures that have been brought into the U.S. marketplace. Um, and, you know, whether or not you're a first generation, second generation or, you know, um, new, new you know, immigrant into our country, um, these are products that speak to these diverse communities. And so I feel that, you know, unlike in our prior life doing, um, you know, big pharma FDA trials, um, in this world of alternative medicines, we're already getting to people and communities that are that are representative of so many types of backgrounds and lifestyles and ethnicities. Yeah, no, and that's I mean, I, I do love the fact and, you know, and again, it does it does feel like a, you know, first of all, I, I see how it's a transition or a continuation of that initial vision with with Science 37 and you know, but with Science 37, you know, ultimately you were trying to help those, you know, help the same people, but you were doing it with a number of middlemen there and kind of the the research process. And now you're building something that can reach people directly and give them practical guidance that can help them make decisions on a, you know, on a daily basis, which, you know, the, the impact is there and the ability to kind of connect with people is is there. So I think that's that's really exciting. And, you know, a couple questions about this, and I know we're, we're close to time here, so I want to, um, you know, get to a couple of, you know, a couple of asks. But, you know, one, is this, is this live right now? Can a consumer just go to, to peoplescience.health and start to access information? And along with that, is this just, uh, is it just kind of the, call it the, 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 the supplements and kind of uh, 
um, you know, medicinal side of alternative medicine, or is this touching on things, whether it's, uh, you know, yoga or meditation or other, um, you know, other practices that are uh, also fit into alternative medicine? Yeah, so we're, we're kind of like, slow launching it. Um, so if you go to our website, there's a little bit of content. Um, we're only getting started um, for education, you know, for, for consumers and and the the actual like mobile app we call Chloe. Chloe stands for Consumer Health Learning and Organizing Ecosystem. So the actual mobile app is not yet available publicly for people to use. Um, however, um, people who want to participate in some of our studies that are currently um, enrolling, they will start to use Chloe within that context, so they can get access to it there. Um, and and then for for our clients, um, whether or not it's a CPG um, company brand manufacturer, whether or not it's an academic researcher, or even um, a small biotech um, wanting to do some clinical research studies, where where our shingle is hung up, we're open and doing that work right now. Um, so those clients feel free to reach out on our website. Um, and then in terms of the, the consumer part, um, we're really excited about where the roadmap for Chloe is headed um, in terms of what it's going to provide for consumers themselves. So outside of, you know, what we call our sponsored studies. So the studies where people sign up, they get products shipped to their home. They, you know, do kind of that conventional protocol driven type of research study um, outside of that. Chloe will actually enable anyone to use it as a tool to test whatever they want on themselves for their health. So, so Dave, if you wanted to test out whether or not taking a 15-minute walk around the block every day was going to help you with your sleep, you could do that using Chloe. So that's the kind of tool it, it will be. Um, and even like, you know, if you wanted to take a product that you're buying um, to test out your, your anxiety or mood, um, that's that's also something people could use. Um, so that launch will come out um, sometime early next year. We're working on some really exciting um, design elements, um, getting the back end um, ramped up for that. Um, and one thing I'll say is while this has this kind of like direct to consumer, really fun, engaging way for people to do science on themselves, um, on the back end, it's a really sophisticated um, tool that will collect data to the level of data integrity and rigor that's needed for registrational studies with the FDA. So that's the that to me is is a differentiator. Um, we made that very early decision to put the time and the cost because it's not cheap to do that um, to put the time and the cost into that because we know that's what the industry needs. Like that's part of the reason why. The CPG world is like the Wild West. Is like, where's the rigor? Where's the quality? Um, and if we can build um, a way for them to to have that um, in an affordable way, that's that's part of what we're doing to service our clients in this space. Yeah, no, that, that's that's phenomenal, and I, I I personally cannot wait to see how that evolves. And I'm hoping that Bioscience LA can help uh, help support that growth. I know there's a lot of listeners who. Um, you know, even if they work in the general tech world, they're they're very focused on on health and wellness. And so I feel like you're building something that ultimately, you know, everyone's going to want to try out. So 
hopefully people will follow up, uh, whether it's on the consumer side or on the, you know, on the, the, the business side. And so more to come with that. Um, would love just, we've talked about so much. You've done so many things. Uh, I, I, my guess is you're, you know, you're still multitasking with, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, multiple things across entrepreneurship, but also healthcare. Um, how do you, uh, how do you manage to stay sane and balanced with all of this and, uh, you know, sort of any, any tips and tricks personally that you do that kind of keep you at top performance? Oh gosh. Yeah. Personal tips. Yeah. <laughs> this, so, so this will not, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a few, a few things that I do. One is, um, I try not to use my device. So, so while you say we multitask, we do indeed. Um, and if I keep my device away from me in my dedicated time with my family, meaning like, you know, I'm, I'm deep in the weeds with my kid playing like his new Lego set or like trying to construct this new vehicle that's going to be indestructible or, you know, like that's where I am. I'm, my phone is not on my body. And it's funny because like in our household, it's like mom doesn't know where her phone is again, you know? Um, and I think that helps me a lot, you know? So it's, it's being in the moment, you know, with, with the moments that I feel are energizing and nurturing. Um, and it's with, with the people. Um, that's one thing for sure. A second thing is like, um, I continue to prioritize people in my life. Um, and I think often people say, what were your lessons learned over the last few years as an entrepreneur? And and it's people, it's people, people, people. That's like, that's, that's it. It doesn't matter anything else you do because ideas are everywhere and great ideas are everywhere. And um, you, you can't make them into anything without having the people around to make it happen. Um, and so I, I spend a lot of time um, connecting with with people and it's it doesn't have to be people that are related to my work per se you know um, it doesn't have to be people science related it's it's people who bring me joy and people who remind me that um, that we're all human beings and ultimately all of this all of these are externalities that we have um, you know and beliefs and if we can't believe in um, we've got it all within ourselves and you know, it's, it's all we need ultimately. Um, I think it, it's, it's where, it's where a lot of the challenges are for people. So, um, you know, I, I surround myself with people I love and it's, and surrounding myself is like, I call them during my 25 minute drive home (laughs) to say like, Hey, how are you doing? Let's catch up. (laughs) Um, is now a good time, you know, for, for a 10 minute conversation. Um, so that, um, and then, and then I'll say too, in, in my effort to advocate for destigmatizing mental health, I have given myself the gift of therapy. Um, I have a therapist who is such a important role in my life. Um, you know, in addition to having a, an incredibly supportive partner, um, in Noah as a business and personal partner, um, my therapist is someone who, lets my mind really explore things that otherwise would kind of like circle and trap itself and get into giant rabbit holes within my consciousness, you know? And, and I think, um, and I recognize it's a privilege, you know, because therapy is not accessible to a lot of people. And among the things that I would love to see in our future and perhaps in how we're generating more evidence 
for people's health and wellness um, is to bring more um, more access to therapy for more people across all all ecosystems and social economic levels. You know, I think it's it's so critical to have that um, for for us. Um, so yeah, those are the things that I would say keep me keep me sane and balanced and um, and going strong. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that is phenomenal, and uh, um, I I agree with all of that, and I just wish I could uh, put my device aside more often at home. So I'm gonna maybe I'll that'll be a. I'll, I'll see if I can work on that over the holidays because it's uh, that's my that's my <laughs> that's my big problem is uh, trying to get the kids to not use their devices, and meanwhile while I'm telling them that I'm holding on to my phone and uh, you know <laughs> it's a challenge for sure. But uh, Belinda, this has been so much fun, and uh, I'm I'm looking forward to being able to revisit this conversation. Uh, for sure, um, you know at Bioscience LA, but hopefully on uh, follow up podcast because I really want to hear how how people science evolves. And I think you're working on some really incredible stuff that's very much needed and ties into, um, you know, ties into that integration of, um, you know, healthcare and innovation and technology that we do so well in Los Angeles. I think it ties back to that, that creative aspect that you mentioned, but, uh, you know, it really does tie back to, uh, you know, tie back to people. And so, uh, you know, you've kept, you've kept science in the company name, but you've got people in there. And I think that really is, you know, it's very much what you're trying to do. So I love that. So, um, um, I think you already, you already shared people can go people, people, science.health. They can connect with you there and hopefully people will do that. Um, I want to thank everyone for hanging out with we are life tech podcast today. Uh, such a wonderful, long, but uh, deep and meaningful conversation. Uh, to connect and collaborate with more amazing people in the We Are LA Tech community, or in the LA Tech community, uh, please go to the We Are LA Tech Facebook group. Uh, check out wearelatech.com slash community. Uh, that's again, wearelatech.com slash community. Uh, we are on social at We Are LA Tech, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I will see you again on upcoming episodes. Uh, I know Esprit and others will be back soon. So uh, happy holidays. Happy New Year to all. This will probably air in 2023. So it's already New Year. But anyway, thank you so much, Belinda. And uh, we will talk again soon. Thank you, Dave. This has been so fun. Hi, this is Belinda Tan. I am co-founder and co-CEO of People Science. People Science is a new research company that is finding the evidence for what makes us all better. We are exploring the alternative medicine world together with consumers. We're based in Venice and you are listening to We Are LA Tech. The We Are LA Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The We Are LA Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes.